Good morning, Christ Church. All right, I'm joining you from my home this week uh, just to kind of clarify what's going on. So I had contact with a person who had contact with a person who's getting tested for COVID. And so just out of an abundance of caution for our worship team and for everybody else who might uh, be in the church at a various point in time, I am going to stay at home for the moment, for the time being, until we can figure out if I did potentially have it or not. Um, yeah, so I'm going to worship with you guys as you guys worship at home. But uh, if you would, let's continue in our worship by joining a word of prayer for our community, for our church, and, and for the world around us. Please pray with me. All right. Dear Father, ah, Lord, you are the one for whom our soul awaits in silence. The rock of our salvation, the deliverer from evil, the prince of peace, and the great counselor. Father, as we continue to endure in this time, um, the resurging amount of cases in COVID with the uncertainty that it brings, with um, the uncertainty of fall and sports and school and work and, and everything else that goes into our daily lives. Lord, we turn to you because we know that you are in control of it all. You are the one that we seek to follow and to trust, uh, even in the midst of calamity and opposition and uncertainty. So, Lord, we, we plead on behalf of our brothers and sisters, those who are sick, those who experience loss, those who um, are in the hospital, and those who are lonely, that you may be with them, you may be working in them, you may be giving them peace and strength and comfort and healing, Lord, not waiting for other actions, but intervening and, and acting miraculously on their behalf. Father, we pray for our leaders that you may give them wisdom and discernment, um, both to endure the pressures of office and also to make good decisions moving forward. And Lord, we also pray for or the church around the world, that they might be bold in their witness to you and their witness of the gospel and bold in their um, daily lives and loving their neighbor as themselves. Yes, Lord, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So when I was growing up, I remember watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Now, I wasn't very old. I think I was in kindergarten on the year that they won their last championship. And so it was fun for this uh, docu-series, the, the Last Dance, to come out and so to hear a little bit more about some of the behind-the-scenes things and, and the um, various details that weren't apparent just by watching the basketball games. And I remember when I was a kid, especially uh, – when I was actually watching and watching the, the games and the finals go down live, that it just seemed inevitable that, that Michael Jordan was going to win, right? He's the best player in the world. They're the best team. Of course they're going to win. That's just how things were going to end up. It was all just a, a, a matter of time before that's the way it went. And so it was very interesting to me to kind of have um, that that myth of inevitability or that air of inevitability kind of put into question with the various details and, and things that came out from this documentary um, because their journey wasn't easy even though it looked like it to me and even though uh, in various times when I look around and I see people that are very successful or who have uh, enjoyed a bit of prosperity that it seems ah things must be going so very easily for them to have a reminder that no life is hard 
You know, it's easy for us to think that periods of success and blessing should be and are devoid of setbacks. Things just go smoothly, and, and that makes the impact of our own setbacks feel all the more demoralizing. You can bring up the questions of, of why did that thing happen? Why is this happening now? Things should be going well. Why am I experiencing so many trials and troubles? You know, am I doing something wrong? Or maybe, you know, is God really wanting me to do this? Is is this his way of saying, don't do this, turn around, go back, do something else? You're doing it wrong? Now, in our passage for today, we encounter King David. And he's near the height of his, his kingdom's power. Um, God has just made an eternal covenant with him. And, and last week we talked about this in chapter 7. And he's promising David not only... a that his descendants will be on the throne forever, but he also promised David rest from his violent neighboring nations. And David, he goes on to achieve massive military victories that, that do in, enact this rest. He achieves peace um, from the uh, raids and from the wars that, that have surrounded him um, throughout his rule and reign. But in the midst of it, that's where we're at now for our passage, he writes Psalm 60, which we've been talking about during this service a little bit, and he opens that psalm with this line, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have made your people see hard things. Now that doesn't exactly sound like a king who as historians describe, began the golden age of Israel. And it doesn't sound like um, an accurate summary of, of the tremendous victories that are being described in our passage, or at least as we look back on it and say, wow, those are massive victories. Yet in the midst of it, he's saying and, and writing psalms such as, God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. It feels like you are against us. And if this is part of, of David's life as a picture of prosperity according to history, then it begs that question of, of what exactly does prosperity look like when following God? If David, the one who is uh, regarded as the, the pinnacle of, of the kingdom of Israel's power and influence and might and faithfulness in following God um, is acutely feeling this feeling of rejection and abandonment in the midst of it. Well, then what exactly does it feel like when things are supposedly going well for us? So for our passage, I invite with you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to read the whole chapter today. And we're going to talk about it. So I invite you to turn with me, continuing on in David's story, starting in verse 1. We read this. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan the son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? No. No. Has David not sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out, so to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown. 
then return. Now, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, the men of Tob, 12,000 men. I didn't mean to roll my tongue like that. It just came out. Continuing on, verse 7. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rahab and of the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in rear, he chose some of his best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And then they came to Helam, and with Shobak as their commander, the army of Hadadezer at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and gathered and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. Then the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots with 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. All right. Let's pray for illumination. Dear Lord, as we dig into your scripture today, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us, opening up our hearts and our minds and our souls to the words that you have to say. May I preach that which you have um, set before us and that we may hear your words and be strengthened and encouraged by your spirit. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, from the text, right, we do see, in summary, at the end of it all, David is victorious at the end, and he has achieved these great victories uh, that history knows him for. But the biblical account gives us a glimpse of kind of what's going on throughout that journey. And it starts, it starts with betrayal. David tries to show sympathy to a neighboring kingdom who has been loyal with him, and in return, his envoys are disgraced, and a mercenary army is hired in order to fight against him. Now, he used to, he dealt loyally with them. He didn't, I don't know if he considered them friends, but at least colleagues, someone that he trusted or at least respected, and now all of a sudden they've outright declared war on him for no reason, without provocation. How incredibly frustrating and disheartening that has to be. Lord, you promised me rest from these violent neighbors. Look, look what they're doing now. And next, 
Next, when this battle actually starts, his men are faced with a hopeless situation. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the initial strategy David had here was. It's, the Bible's not a military tactic textbook. But David sends out the equivalent of his special forces, his host of mighty men, to deal with this threat. And they find themselves surrounded by tens of thousands of men. And now, this is a little bit of conjecture, but the probable reason that David didn't bring the whole army of Israel to go fight against this threat is because the last time this happened, right back in chapter 8, we didn't read this together, but you can go back and read it yourself. The last time that David was facing these adversaries up in the north and he brought his whole army up to the north to fight them, his neighbors from the south, the Edomites, those who were descended of Esau, the, the Israelites were descended from Jacob and his brother Esau, his descendants became the Edomites, and they were now neighbors. And when it, David is up in the north fighting against this, this same enemy beforehand, the Edomites came in behind him and they stabbed him in the back and they pillaged the parts of Israel that they could get to. Now this isn't something that um, is explicitly declared in these accounts in First and Second Samuel or in First and Second Chronicles, but we know it because of Psalm 60. And there's a description before that psalm of what David says during that psalm, that man, during this period of prosperity, which history lauds him for, for, for a great period of victory, in fact, was beset with troubles and betrayals and now a backstabbing. So, so far in David's triumphant conquests, when, when history regards him as being in enjoying a period of great prosperity, we have two cases of betrayal and his elite forces getting hopelessly surrounded. And that's not even all. Lastly, the mercenaries, those who, who have really have no heart in the fight, well, now all of a sudden their pride is hurt because they ran away from the battlefield. So they summon their entire kingdom to regain their honor or something stupid like that. So now David, right, David's fighting against this vast force with superior weaponry all because some insecure new king projected ill intent upon his gesture of goodwill. Right? David didn't even do anything wrong. He didn't even do anything to deserve this. And all of a sudden, everybody's up in arms against him. Does this sound like the events at the beginning of a golden age? Continuous warfare? Getting raided and pillaged every time you turn your back? Now, I don't know about you, but... It, if I have massive coalitions of kingdoms being formed to fight against me time and time and time again, I don't think I would consider that to be a time of prosperity. But look what God does here. In the first battle, down there in verse 13 of chapter 10, the Israelites are surrounded. His special forces, his elite men, his mighty men are surrounded in a seemingly hopeless battle. Job has to tell his people to take courage the Lord will do what he seem, what seems good to him. But both of the armies fled from before the Israelites. Even though they divided their forces, both armies fled from them before any fighting occurred. When they drew near to battle, the armies fled. They didn't even actually fight. They just fled as they drew near. And that's reminiscent of, of what God was doing before with the Israelites, back in the time of Joshua and of Jericho, and as they're just entering in the Promised Land, and, and in the times of the various judges, as they're facing the overwhelming forces of the Philistines and other neighboring warlords. Next, 
right? When the vast army comes against him, David is victorious. And in verse 19, he gains a whole host of kingdoms declaring vassalage to him. And the Syrian army, the ones who are mustering the most number of troops against David, have decided, yeah, we're not going to fight against Israel if we have a choice in the matter. And oh yeah, by the way, that, that ruinous backstabbing that David endured at the hand of Esau's descendants, the Edomites, back in that previous campaign, well, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10 tells us that God gave him victory over them, and, and because of that victory and through that victory, David made a name for himself. Indeed, the words spoken by Joab in verse 12 characterize this whole passage. And Joab says this, he says, Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, Joab's not a person that I would ever point to as a role model. He is... He is not a good dude. But under David's rule and under his direction, Joab attests that even in the face of seemingly insurmountable opposition, when things seem hopeless, when he's telling the most valiant men of Israel who have done incredible deeds that they need to take courage, and you know things are in a bad case, that he even attests to we must put our trust in God. Now, prosperity is a fickle thing to define, especially by the world standards. Now, looking at our our, our biblical description of David's period of prosperity, we find a lot of application for our own lives. David's facing frustration, disheartening situations, seemingly hopeless military situations, battle on all fronts, never, never getting any rest that's been promised, it seems like, and betrayal and backstabbing, and man, this does not sound like prosperity. And remember, we're not David. In the Bible, David is the anointed king of God's people. He's put forth as sort of this Messiah figure in Israel. And so when we read this story, we are not called to be the Davids of this story. But we are called to be God's people. And God's people in the story are the people of Israel, the, the, the um, population of Israel. And just like the Israelites, we do follow the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant, the one who has been anointed king over all of God's people. Right? We follow Jesus. And Jesus is that greater fulfillment of the figure of of David back in the New Testament when they're expecting a Messiah, they're expecting one to come like David to be a conquering hero. And Jesus comes, and he's not the conquering hero they think of when they think of these battles like David had, but yet he does so much more, so much greater. And similarly to what we read here in David, he faces incredibly disheartening betrayals and hopeless situations. And as Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, specifically in verse 18, but throughout that whole chapter, that times of prosperity, when we follow him, are going to feel a lot like it did for the Israelites under David. Problems facing us and facing the church are going to feel like betrayals. They're going to feel like overwhelming opposition that makes a battle feel hopeless. We will get stabbed in the back by those who should be our allies. We will get frustrated. We will be disheartened. Things will be hard. 
And the temptation will be for us to put our trust in something, anything other than God, anything we can get our hands on to relieve this moment of suffering. And in our story, the Ammonites, and in, as you read through the, the rest of the history of Israel, many of the kings of Israel and of Judah, and those who are described as bad kings, or in doing things that are not good, put their trust in something other than God. They put their trust in their money. The Ammonites hired mercenaries, and, and they put their trust in political alliances, getting other nations to come and other uh, uh, organizations, those who also don't trust in God, to come and be their allies and fight their battles for them. And it's so easy for us to fall in that trap, so easy to try and, and, and see by our own intuition what seems like the only way out. And it seems like we have to do something or put our trust first and foremost in something other than God. You know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible. And perhaps what that looks like in today's culture, it can, it can look like falling into that trap of thinking that we need to vote Republican or we need to vote Democrat in order to save the witness of the church. Right? We need a Republican in office to get certain policies that, that uh, are advocated for in God's word. Or we need a Democrat in office so that we can actually finally um, go forth with some of the social justice that we see needing to happen that God's word advocates for. Or we might feel like we need large endowments for our church because who knows what's coming up with the current pushes for, for churches to be taxed, you know? Who knows the financial situation that we're going to be in and we might, we might do. We've got to save up and put our trust in money to, to sustain and, and bring the church forward. But God shows us through His Word that none of that is necessary. Because no matter what we are facing or how hopeless the situation, God fulfills his promises. At the end of this story, the end of this passage, through all the trials and the struggles and the sufferings that that David has been put through, God has fulfilled his promises to David. He has made David king over Israel as he anointed him to be. He has given, he gives David rest from his neighboring violent men coming against him. And he's established the king as a descendant of David forever. Now that doesn't mean that our lives will be easy. Many of the Israelites during David's rule died and suffered at the hands of their enemies while David was king. And yet we know, we know that our king We know that Jesus was victorious in the most hopeless battle. That when he died on the cross, when he was raised to life, that death was defeated. That thing that we have absolutely no hope in defeating our own. Jesus won that battle. In fact, he won the entire war. And through him, God has promised us eternal life. And because of that, because God fulfills his promises, we put our trust in him no matter what trials or sufferings may come our way. And so Christ Church, as you go forth, as we continue to endure and to to figure out and, and then think about what is the path forward for us as God's people, how can we follow him faithfully in, in a world that one is affected by a pandemic and our, our daily lives look totally different and the church life looks totally different. In a time in which the injustices of our nation are being brought back into the forefront, we're 
We're staring in the face or coming to grips with all of the evil that our nation has done. And we're looking forward at a future in which it seems like Christianity is on a decline in our nation. More and more numbers of, of people in our nation are, are, are testing to not believe in anything and going to other religions. And it seems like we need to do something. It seems like we need to look at the some other strategy, something to partner with, something else to save us, something to put our trust in, some easy solution to get ourselves out of this situation. Let us know. Let us remember and let us hold on to the truth that God himself has promised that he is the one doing the work in the kingdom. That we work through him. That he is the one who does everything. He is the one who has done everything. And in the end, in the end, he will come again. And then we will live with him eternally. So Christ Church, I invite you I implore you and I ask you to trust in the Lord. Whatever the trials, whatever the sufferings. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't things for us to do, right? But first and foremost and above all else, putting our trust in God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, Father, just as you had dealt with David, so... So you will fulfill your promise in an even greater extent in Jesus. So help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you when the world hates us. When it seems like the things that we need to be battling for and advocating for are hopeless causes. That we may continue to trust in you. Continue to know and find assurance that you fulfill your promises. That you are in control, Lord. And that your will can never, ever be shaken. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Christ Church. It's not nearly as much fun preaching from home. But one of the great things that we get to celebrate all together, that I invite you to celebrate with me now, is that um, assurance, that physical, tangible sign and symbol that Jesus was victorious over death and that through him we are victorious over death, that the most hopeless battle has been turned and won in our favor. That is coming to the table, all of us together throughout um, time and space. We gather together at the table of Jesus and then through the power of the Holy Spirit we are brought into his presence, brought into that final celebration of Jesus' victory. And looking forward to that time in which we will do it all together. The new heavens and the new earth. Alright, so. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. Saying, this is my body. Broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after they had supped, he took the cup and he poured wine into it, saying, This is my blood, poured out for you as a New Testament. Take and drink in remembrance of me. All right, Christ Church, the table is ready. Let me invite you, if you believe in Christ Jesus, 
as your Lord and Savior to join with us in this meal, in this feast. Amen. All right, I invite you to continue worshiping with us, um, with Jess and the worship team as they uh, lead you in thanksgiving for the thing that we have celebrated here at the table and close out our service. <laughs>